In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So, Jane, do you know what the hell you're talking about on this <laughs> subject? Because I do not. <laughs> I mean, that's never stopped us before. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lynn, Jane Coaston. It is a, a very merry government shutdown is looming today, but we don't want to do an episode on that on the off chance that there is a last minute deal uh, that occurs before the episode actually comes out. Also because the government continuing to run or not as much as it matters to, I don't know, thousands of people is not something that, in theory, Congress is supposed to be, like, actually legislating. And they did that this week. Yes, exactly. Amidst the acrimony, there was a breakout of bipartisanship. A long-in-the-works criminal justice reform bill came together. I'm going to play the straight man here. I have been vaguely hearing about criminal justice reform bills for a long time, nodding along. Often what happens in congressional reporting is people come up with words for things. And so this legislation was called the criminal justice reform bill and it passed. And one vaguely knew that people on the left were for criminal justice reform, whereas there were some tough-on-crime skeptics on the right, but ultimately Republicans came around to criminal justice reform. But that could still leave it a little unclear in a normal person's mind. What is criminal justice reform? There is a lot happening in criminal justice. What does this bill actually do? And I will say that the messaging around this did not super help with this because on the one hand, the bill is literally called the First Step Act. And on the other hand, everybody who voted for it in the Senate chamber was crying and hugging each other and calling it right. this like sweeping, humongous big deal. Well, Cory Booker when, and when, Chuck Grassley coming together in the spirit right, so of like, the holidays. Is it a first step or is it like this ginormous leap? <laughs> so I think that um, our colleague, Herman Lopez, I think he made an excellent point that this could in some ways be called the Meaningful Tweaks Act. So he talked about this bill in a couple of great pieces that you should go read. Basically, the bill very slightly pulls back punitive mandatory minimum sentencing, allowing judges in to federal give, in federal court, allowing judges to give lower sentences in some circumstances and relaxing the three strikes law, which a lot of people may have heard about, which is that, you know, on the third offense, you would automatically in some cases be given life in prison. And now that could be 25 years. So some people may remember in the halcyon days of 2010 that we had crack cocaine sentencing reform, uh, yes. which was to make powder cocaine and crack cocaine sentencing more equivalent, which they were not it because is, yeah, of still racism. Not, still not totally one-to-one thanks right. to the efforts of then Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions. Good but times. not like 30 to 1. Right, exactly. And I want to actually push back a little. This is something I remember looking into in, in 2010. It became conventional wisdom by the time of the push for sentencing parity that this was a, a racist measure. But the actual legislative history of the sentencing disparity is that a number of congressional black caucus members were pushing for incredibly strict crack cocaine sentencing laws right, that so- they felt was devastating their community. Yeah, so Which like, is not to say it's a good, I, I just, it's just like a little sidebar, but just to say that like I think it is always a little overly simplistic to simply make the assertion that like very harsh on crime policies are like anti-black policies per se, because at least some of these came out of of another a different point in time in American politics. This is actually a really good point because I think we're going to be getting into some of the intra-conservative discussion on criminal justice reform. And focusing on that can make it seem like there is monolithic support, like everywhere from the center to the left about things. And to the extent that that's true, it's a recent development. Like it is 
the case that until really the Obama administration, it was neither a super high priority nor a uniform position that mass incarceration had gone too far among the Democratic Party. And a lot of that was, you know, local establishment black leaders. James Foreman Jr. has a tremendous book about this called Locking Up Our Own that really does get into both the people who were in favor of it in black communities at the time and the early critics saying, look, this is going to end up being very bad for black communities. The message that the Democratic Party has settled on isn't that this was a deliberate effort Right. And I think the phrase the new Jim Crow can can often obscure this, but the position that has become conventional wisdom among, you know, the center left to left is that it's the disparate impacts of things like the crack yeah. to powder sentencing disparity are so tremendous. And, you know, with the benefit of years of data, it's become clear that it's not like crack is 30 times more dangerous than right. the equivalent volume of powder cocaine. And so— it is less in a racism of intent than a racism of effect. Right, exactly. And I think it's interesting how a lot of kind of the criminal justice crackdowns of the early 1990s had a lot of support from black leaders within specific communities who were reacting to what they viewed as kind of a avalanche of violence taking place. And now you're seeing a lot of African-American civil rights groups taking a look at this legislation. For instance, um, you know, the Movement for Black Lives put out a statement talking about their opposition to First Step because they think that, in their quote, this bill is custom-made for rich white men with regard to the carve-outs that I will get into because that's actually what's caused the most debate among conservatives and has caused some consternation on, among some people on the left. And the carve-outs, when we talk about carve-outs, we're talking about the so-called good time credits, which means that well-behaved inmates, in the words of our uh, colleague, can use to get out of prison a little bit earlier and also creates earned time credits that encourage inmates to take part in rehabilitative programs from earlier release. And so it's called the First Step Act for the reason. This only will allow about six to 7,000 inmates out of prison early once would be enacted and it would slightly shorten prison sentences. But it's those carve-outs that are a big deal. And that's something that, you know, when we talk about intra-conservative debate over this, generally that was Senator Tom Cotton versus Senator Mike Lee. And they both had dueling columns in National Review over the span of a couple of days. And that point about the carve-outs in his op-ed in the National Review, Mike Lee goes into that um, most prisoners can earn up to 54 days of credit per year if they display exemplary compliance with institutional disciplinary regulations. And it's a modest change from existing law, which has been interpreted to allow 47 days of good time credits. And there's also a new credit for participating in recidivism reduction programs or other productive activities. So when we talk about the carve-outs, that is the 50 offenses that if you're convicted for one of those offenses, you are disqualified from getting that credit. And the remaining inmates who have not committed one of those 50 offenses are only eligible if they're determined to be of minimum or low recidivism risk by the warden of their facility. But if you are Tom Cotton, you believe that this basically ensures that violent felons are eligible for early release and that many serious violent crimes are missing from this carve-outs list. So, for example, he was very concerned that assault resulting in substantial bodily injury to a spouse or a child would not stop you from being able to be on this. It's not on the list of 50 crimes. Right, correct. Or uh, trafficking heroin and fentanyl, if not also convicted of certain other charges. And it was interesting because while there was a lot of debate on the left about this bill, among the Democrats... In Congress, there was not as much debate. And I think that that's because the efforts to get this passed, it's been really interesting also because this was something Van Jones worked on with Jared Kushner. This is something that involved, you know, Kim Kardashian was involved. Like, it sort of turned into, like, a very strange, very special episode of the television program that is this Congress. But it was interesting to see that among conservatives, because conservative criminal justice reform is something that I've been writing on for a number of years now, you know, the Charles Koch Institute, and it's basically using Texas as a model. And for those who don't know, Texas has had a pretty successful experiment in closing prisons and changing how sentencing works. And a lot of conservatives think that, you know, if it works in Texas, it can work elsewhere. And it has. Like, I mean, yeah. at this point, there's like 
you know, Georgia has become something of a leader in conservative decarceration. Uh, even some of the real laggard states like Louisiana have managed to like it. State criminal justice reform has basically completed its first phase in a way that is has more influence on the numbers than federal criminal justice reform has, but, like, with a lot of conservative states taking the lead. Right, exactly. And which is why that when Tom Cotton and Senator John Kennedy introduced three amendments to the first step that would have essentially gutted the legislation by excluding just vast numbers of prisoners from being eligible for those kind of good time credits or earned time credits, they were voted down. And it's also interesting, one other thing I want to mention that is included in First Step is that it bans the shackling of pregnant female inmates in federal prisons, which is something that, yes, has been taking place. Apparently, there was no federal law against it. The Bureau of Prisons updated its policies in 2008 to bar the practice, but in federal prisons, you were still allowed to do so. And even in places where it's supposed to be banned, it was still taking place in that, you know, people were being shackled while giving birth. And so C.J. Ciaramella over at Reason, you know, he's been writing about this a lot, and he talked about the experience of Pamela Wynn, who suffered a miscarriage when she fell while she was, like, shackled by the ankles and wrists. So that is also something that's included in First Step. And there's a perception, I think, of the conservative movement that there isn't a lot of internal debate going on about topics. That's what I think. (laughs) That so, for example, what the conservative movement tries to do is cut taxes for rich people, and that in the most right-wing states, they've already gutted public services to such an extent that the only possible way to cut taxes for rich people more is to start letting prisoners out of jail. And so they do, forced by by desperation, that there's like there's no Medicaid left to eliminate in Texas, so they let some prisoners out of jail, which you know, good for them, but like it's because there's no debate in the conservative movement that it's a it's a movement run by plutocrats and that like Donald Trump <laughs> I cannot think of any person in American public life who has done more to like for cynical partisan political gain like whip up racialized fear of crime than Donald Trump who like now sure will sign this bill because conservative mega donors want him to because the whipping up of hysteria about racialized fear of crime is like just a big con to enact the Koch brothers pro-business agenda. I feel this like this, I, feel, I, I, I have seen this hypothesis. and I feel like I, I, this is a fascinating story and I feel like it just like entirely validates my view of the conservative movement. So there are a lot of reasons that I think that that is wrong. One of which is since when does Donald Trump actually do the bidding of plutocrats as opposed to whatever Donald, like if Donald Trump cared about the bidding of plutocrats, he wouldn't be like just raising tariffs willy nilly. But we, um, many of the things that have taken place over the last six months are not things that the Charles Koch Institute is terribly interested in having taken place. I mean, this Before we get into the bigger, like what are the goals here? I think it's worthwhile to have a little bit more context on the legislative history of criminal justice reform in Congress over the last five years because like this didn't happen because of Donald Trump. This happened essentially because of Chuck Grassley. The idea that Congress needed to do something on criminal justice reform has been in the water going back before the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010. And that was itself seen as kind of a first step by a lot of people. The narrative in criminal justice reform circles is that drug offenses are low-hanging fruit, right? right? Like there is a big distinction between drug offenses and violent crime, and that even though in states a lot of prisoners are locked up for violent crime, in federal prison, like, a lot of prisoners are locked up for drug offenses. And so the easiest way to reduce mass incarceration is to stop sentencing as harshly for, you know, nonviolent drug offenses. And this is because essentially, right, like, way back in the day, like, killing people was made illegal by state governments. Right. And there was never like a big political move to be like, we need to make murder a crime, right? So like violent crime is mostly dealt with by state governments, whereas there was like a big thing in national politics, like a war on drugs, which led to a push to like federalize 
Yes. Drug right. law and drug yes. offenses. So, for, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, like, it's sort of weird reasons that like the federal criminal justice system is very disproportionately focused on drug crimes relative to state governments. Right. Even though drugs are also illegal, like yes. on a state but, level. I, mean, I, don't, I, I think it is a historical artifact, but right. I think it's part of the general nationalization of politics and policy exactly. in the second half right. of the 20th century. Right. right. So, a, so a newer issue like exactly. drugs is more federalized, whereas like a very classic political issue, like somebody might kill their neighbor and steal their course or whatever, is a state issue. Yes. Right. So because there was more low-hanging fruit in the federal system, the idea that like Congress was lagging behind states that were already doing this stuff to less effect because it was less of their prison population was definitely in the water and was like had some buy-in – early on from some of the more libertarian-leaning senators. So starting in like 2013, 2014, you start seeing bills being produced that are, you know, left-right partnerships that focus on reducing sentencing, either on the back end through this these good time and earned time credits for people who are already in prison or on the front end by reducing things like mandatory minimums so that people are getting sentenced to less time to begin with. Those like in the next few Congresses, they make it a little further in the process and then stop. Like one year they get votes in the Senate Judiciary Committee, but then like there isn't any interest in bringing them to the floor. The next Congress, there's interest in bringing them to the floor, but it doesn't actually happen. So what ends up being apparent is there is not enough buy-in among the Republican Senate conference in actually spending floor time on this and that something needs to be done to make it more appealing to people who don't necessarily have like Mike Lee strength feelings on the issue right. but also aren't Tom Cotton who has a clear ideological objection to any form of decarceration. The thing that drives that change is Chuck Grassley getting on board with the idea of criminal justice reform as a legacy thing for him. That happens in like 2015-2016 and all of a sudden, he goes from someone who is kind of like, eh, I'll bring up these bills, but like I am deeply skeptical of anything beyond the most modest to, oh, I have decided that this bill that I support is in fact a bigger change. And like it is very important that Congress does that because he's head of the Senate Judiciary Committee and because he's like nearing the end of his career, this becomes a real legacy play from a very powerful member of the Senate. So to the extent that this has not fallen off the radar over the course of this Congress to the point that they actually voted on it during the lame duck session, it is really impossible to overstate the fact that like Chuck Grassley is saying, this is something that I was promised would be a priority for this administration. This is something that I believe needs to be a priority for this Congress. You know, Grassley soured on his former colleague Jeff Sessions once it became clear that Sessions wasn't willing to back this. It's really been something that he has spent, you know, not political capital on because he's not really losing political capital, but that he has kind of prevented from falling off the radar. And so ultimately he managed to extract a promise from Mitch McConnell that they were going to bring it to the floor. Right. Like and, Donald and when, Trump got on board finally. Right. But like Donald Trump getting on board – I think that there really is an open question as to how much effort Donald Trump actually put into this. Right. It's more that a the lot White House question. wasn't standing in the way. Okay, let's let's take a quick break now. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or 
Forestland carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use. More than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. There was a lot of questions about like whether or not Mitch McConnell was just going to like hold the ball until essentially now and that this would never actually happen because there was a lot. I think we talked about criminal justice reform when the Kanye Kim sure. thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. that all happened. And there were, you know, Mitch McConnell was like, well, after the midterms, if we have 60 votes, well, we'll contemplate doing something. Sure. And then the fact that this has actually taken place that you know Chuck Grassley actually was able to get this done with the vast majority of Republicans on board, especially while among conservatives, there was a lot of conversation of people who were like, I don't remember a grassroots effort to get criminal justice reform passed. I do remember a grassroots effort to get a wall built. So there's been a lot of that conversation going on. And it's really, it says something about the degree to which there's been kind of a real sea change among a lot of Republicans, excluding the Tom Cottons of the world, on this particular issue. And it is called the First Step Act for a reason. Like, these are fairly modest reforms. It only impacts the federal criminal justice system as, you know, a federal law. And because most people are being held, if they're in prison, they're in state facilities. And, you know, that's 87% of U.S. prison inmates. And yet this was still able to take place with a Republican-controlled House, Senate, and White House and get Democrats involved as well. What's been interesting about like, with the exception of the Tom's Cotton of the world is actually, it's an important thing to note because Tom Cotton has been the only Republican in the Senate who's been vocally opposed to this. Like, right. it's not like Mitch McConnell is out here saying this is not a conservative bill. He's just been kind of like, eh, we'll see. It's been Tom Cotton carrying the, like, and to the extent that he kind of successfully kept it from being brought to the floor in the last Congress. Tom Cotton's line is that there is no real distinction between drug crimes and violent crimes. You can see that in the fact that he's talking about heroin and fentanyl trafficking as a violent crime that should be included on this list of 50 barred offenses. Exactly. And that's been the consistent position of the tough-on-crime conservatives for some time, is that because the drug trade is illegal and is often, you know, kind of interwoven with other criminal activities that sometimes involve firearms and violence, that it is irresponsible to consider the nonviolent drug offender to exist as a thing. Right. I mean, the view is that the heroin trade is violent. Right. Yes. Right. And that people who are involved in it in a meaningful way need to be locked up. I mean, I would say more broadly, right. I mean, the Tom Cotton view is just that like the mass incarceration meme is just like flawed. Right, right, right. right. Like, 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 there like, is the, no the problem with premise, locking up too many people. I, I have read a lot of articles about this. I mean, this is, I, I would say, a rare but real example of like genuine liberal bias in the media coverage, which is just almost everything I've read about this, like, embeds the assumption that like there is a problem of mass incarceration and that the question to ask about a piece of legislation is like, what does it do to address the problem, and then a lot of debate about, like, how sweeping is this? Is this a first step? Blah, 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 right. blah, blah, blah. And, like, that- I guess I agree with that, so it's fine. I don't want to complain about it too much, but, I mean, I think, like, to understand Tom Cotton's objection, right, and the fact that well, William Barr is maybe making a comeback as attorney general is interesting because when when he was a, a young man, an attorney general of the United States, um, the whole debate was very much in a different position. There was a large advocacy of it, right? That like what he was saying then was that the problem in America is that we did not have enough physical prison capacity to incarcerate all of the people who should be incarcerated. And part of the politics of of the 1990s was – Republicans saying that, Barb saying that, but like also centrist Democrats taking the mantle of like, look, like we are the party that is willing to invest public funds in important priorities that 
keeping criminals in prison is an important priority. This is a thing that we are going to do. I think too much of this sometimes gets put on Bill Clinton's shoulders specifically. Like looking looking at Barr and Barr's career is a good reminder that like – like many things that that happened in American politics in the 80s and 90s, this was led by conservative Republicans. But it was true that like Democrats are the party that like if they agree something is a problem, are very happy to throw money at it. Whereas Republicans are always a little diffident yeah. about various kinds of things. But the case was being made in the in the 80s and in the early 90s that like, look, the problem is we need more capacity to imprison people. And the dominant framing of like what is going on flipped around to we have far too large a share of the population in prison. And so now we need to look at what are viable ways to reduce incarceration. And that then became, I mean, except for Tom Cotton kind of like throwing snowballs from the sidelines, the entire debate around this, right, was like, how far do we want to go in a world where everyone agrees, all the participants agree that some people should be in prison, right? So you don't you don't just cut the prison population willy-nilly. And there was a movement, right, in an earlier iteration of this bill, Republicans had the idea that part of addressing mass incarceration should be making it much, much harder to prosecute white-collar financial crimes, Right, which yeah. Democratic senators eventually got knocked out of there because, you know, I mean, of course, with anything within the mass incarceration is bad frame, there's still – everyone has somebody they want locked up, right? So you get into these kind of disputes about right. like exactly who do we set free. So I want to put a pin in the mens rea thing um, because I think that it's the best argument that you're wrong, that first step as it has passed the Senate and House is a reflection of the will of the plutocrats. But – you're right that the debate around this has accepted the mass incarceration is bad frame. I think the reason for this is partly beca- not because of media liberal bias, but because of media bipartisan bias. Like right. because there are people on both sides saying it, it's okay to accept it as fact. But there's also like the facts on the ground have changed, right? Like the crime rate has been dropping for the last 25 years to the point that politicians, I think, have started realizing that even if people like the broader American public doesn't necessarily know that crime rates have been dropping for the last 25 years, that on some level they realize that it can't be as salient a factor in a lot of people's vote decisions. Well, I actually think you were right before. It's it's an elite-driven thing, right? That it's like so. One reason press coverage is very willing to say, like, yes, this is criminal justice reform, is that like Chuck Grassley is the top Republican Judiciary Committee. What Donald Trump understands about this, who knows? But like he says, he's for it, and it's like elite people on both sides looked at the crime rate said, look, it is a lot lower than it used to be. So we should be investing fewer public resources in imprisoning people. And similarly, something that's interesting is that there was this – around the Ferguson protests, there was this little flower of something similar happening where a lot of writers, intellectuals, some Republican senators, Tim Scott and Marco Rubio, I both remember speaking out at that time, in the same mentality that like people in the know knew – that crime had fallen a lot. So it seemed much more reasonable to address people's concerns about police abuses than it might have seemed in 1991, right? right. And there was like a little consensus rolling there. Right. And then that consensus got totally blown right. up. And once it became partisanized, the empirics of like, you know, what is the what is happening to the crime rate versus like – what what we know about police abuses, yeah. But I do also think that there is, and this is a hobby horse that I have not gotten on enough in this podcast, and so we'll take the opportunity to do so now. The argument around criminal justice reform has been reduced to an empirical argument, which means that people like Tom Cotton end up having to make bad faith arguments. Like, the question of what is prison for is a very long-standing one going back to, like, Beccaria in the 17th century, right? And some of those things are, like, purposes of incarceration are things that you can measure whether they actually happen or not, right? Like, you can measure whether prison is a deterrent. You can measure whether it actually incapacitates people who would otherwise be committing crimes. And the debate that it would be awesome to have there is, well, maybe we should care a little bit more about crime and violence in prisons rather than just, like, Uh warehousing people. And you can talk about rehabilitation. And, like, that's a super wonky, weedsy debate that for all of the talk about earned credits in this bill, like, 
we're still really working on figuring out what good rehabilitation programs look like. But then there's also the idea that prison exists for punishment, that it is a good idea for society to say, we abhor this behavior and it is good to demonstrate our abhorrence of this behavior by making someone's life a little bit miserable for a while. And that, because we're not having that normative debate openly, you end up having to have these weird, like, these weird normative assumptions being baked into debates, right? Like Tom Cotton can't say it is good that we incarcerate drug offenders because drugs are bad and that's an important signal to send. He has to have this weird argument about like, no, really, it's a violent crime and we're mischaracterizing Or it. he and the Heathers McDonald of the world have to be like, but what about police? Right. They seem to oppose this. And I think that we saw that also with Jeff Sessions when two days before Kanye West visited the White House, if we remember to many years ago when that took place, the Justice Department filed a statement of interest to stop the Chicago Police Department from enacting a major overhaul of how police police. And so I think that the idea that Thomas Cotton and Heathers McDonald's and the kind of statist anti-reform side of the conservative movement have, which is basically is that Police being allowed to do police work as ever they see fit is good because crime is bad. Prisons being able to imprison as many people who commit these crimes, which are bad, is also good. And there's a sense that part of why First Step has been so challenging and why sentencing reform on crack and powder cocaine has been so challenging and why criminal justice reform is challenging at all is because there is an inherent question of if you commit a crime, you should get punished. Or should you? Because at a certain point, you know, and this has led to all this debate among conservatives about like, well, these people would get out of prison, but not these people. Because at a certain point, even those people have to get out of prison sometime. Right. Like even people who have done things that are not like the worst of the worst. We're not talking about getting Charles Manson out of hypothetical jail. But we are talking about people who have, you know, trafficked drugs or were involved in a shooting that killed someone. And at a certain point after they serve 15, 20, 25 years, they will leave prison. Who will they be when they leave? Are they allowed to leave at all? How many things are so bad that you just shouldn't be allowed to be out of prison? And what should you be doing in prison at that time? Should you just be suffering that whole time? Or should you be learning something or doing something? Because there's been a, a lot of conversation among libertarians about the fact that, you know, what you can read in prison and the mail you can get in prison has been curtailed again and again and again by prison wardens in different states, you know, where they're trying to restrict your access to magazines outside of like a very small number that are sold to you by these corporations that work with private prisons. And so this idea of like, what is prison and what is crime? I mean, I know that these sound like very vague Mm -hmm. and amorphous questions, but they're ones that criminal justice reform advocates have been thinking about for decades. And they're ones that, you know, it's really difficult to put in politically salient terms. I totally agree that a lot of the conversation about decarceration, like a lot of the balking at reducing sentences, it's as if people think that everyone is in prison for life unless like proven otherwise. But the thing about the like Heather McDonald, Tom Cotton, the argument about who has expertise and who should be allowed to have power in the system is a really important one. Like the debate over mandatory minimums is essentially a debate about do you want prosecutors to have the power to coerce plea deals as often as not by using the threat of a mandatory minimum? Or do you want judges to have more power in giving them more discretion? Like, it's not as explicit as like a fight between the prosecutor's lobby and the judge's lobby, not least because there is no federal judge's lobby. But that's really the question there. And so looking at the mechanics of first step, it's clear that the assumption that the people closest, the government employees who are enacting the criminal justice system know the most is woven into this, right? Right. The fact that wardens have to be deciding who deserves earned credit, that if you want to get your sentence reduced under the retroactive crack disparity stuff, you have to affirmatively apply and be approved by your warden. Like, there's a lot in here that reflects the idea that, yeah, there are too many people in prison, but the people who should be deciding which people get out are the people running the prison. Right, exactly. This is one of the reasons that I'm a little cynical about the whole thing that like 
There's a lot going on in the criminal justice system, right? And there's like a lot that one could critique. And this seems to me like an effort to zero in on the like most narrowly kind of fiscalized aspect of what can go wrong in the criminal justice system without underpinning any of the um, kind of like social status issues? Like do we just assume that prison wardens are, you know, neutral, beneficent actors, right, who need to be empowered, right? And it's like we do, right? And like cops are amazing and prison guards are great and, and, and everything like that. And the fact that like this is played out at a time when the Republican Party and the conservative movement as a whole have like redoubled their emphasis on crime hysteria as a political strategy really just sort of makes me wonder like what any of this is going to amount to, right? That like progress was made on the general topic of criminal justice. I think largely in the sort of post-2010 era when the the big recession there did not lead to a resurgence in crime or anything like that, there came to be a, a fairly broad elite view that like the crime issue, a lot of progress had been made on and it was now okay to like move in other directions. And we had this legislation, you know, it's a years-long effort, as you guys have been saying, and it dates largely to that era. And there was also, you know, maybe a move on police militarization uh, and, and other kinds of things. But then what we saw with Trump, but not just with Trump personally, but with all Republicans in the wake of Trump, was that they were like, oh, no, it turns out that, like, the crime politics of 1989 are still good for us. We still like them and we still want to use them, right? And we're going to exercise no restraint about using them. We're going to make our central midterm pitch, right, that like this gang of Guatemalans is going to murder your children and you can't let liberals have political authority or else your children will be murdered by Guatemalans. Hondurans, and, but, and that's like, that's what they all lined up behind, right? And, and but it's like, it, I think that an important Marco, point is that it didn't work. Like, you know, we saw that in Virginia's gubernatorial election in 2017, I mean, that they went to a message, you know, Ed Gillespie went to a message of like MS-13 is going to come to like Charlottesville and stab your child and, and it didn't work. I mean, everything in politics, like it works sometimes and it doesn't work other times. But if you ask like how did mandatory minimums come to be, right? And it's like a mandatory minimums comes to be because if you have a system that is based on some sense of you know, statistical thinking about, right, like how long on average should we be putting people in jail for a certain kind of crime? Well, okay, some of the people get out of jail and then they reoffend in spectacular ways. And that's like you would be sentencing people too harshly if it was never the case that somebody got out of jail and then right. reoffended. But you get a story that for whatever reason is unusually spectacular. Maybe the victim is white and middle class or maybe it involves kids. For whatever reason, it becomes like a bigger news thing than your average crime. And then someone is like, we shouldn't be letting people out of jail. There should be a mandatory 20-whatever. And then there's a, a steamroll because I can say it here on the podcast, but you totally understand. Nobody as an elected official wants to be saying, well, look, if it's never the case right. that a convicted murderer gets out of jail and then murders a child, then we are punishing murder too harshly. You sound like an asshole if right, you're saying right, that, yeah. right? Politicians and it, and it, are really it, bad at talking about risk and resilience. But, but, it, but it requires – it's one of these things that like – it actually requires an elite pact to hold, right? That like the only way on a sustainable basis that you can have a sort of reasonable investment in the carceral system is if people are going to abide by norms of reasonableness right. and, in their and politics not, yes. and not just kind of exploit this nonsense. And I, I think like a larger problem in society is we've come to just like assume that politicians always will and always should be maximally cynical about everything when they actually aren't, right? Like this right. got done because Chuck Grassley fairly earnestly has been plotting away and would right. like to have a legacy, right? He, right, like, you know, yeah, I mean, right, Mitch, like Mitch never Mitch, overestimate the the power of white male senatorial right. ego and is, it, I think, the lesson right. here. Right, I mean, and you don't want to be, like, too gaga about it, but it's like, look, Mitch McConnell's idea was keep this off the floor, get a couple more judges confirmed. Chuck Grassley also chairs the committee 
yeah. that gets the judges confirmed. And he was like, look, at the end of the day, I would like to have some signature legislation done. He put his foot down. He eventually like – he got it done and, and good for him, right? But it's like that's how things happen and like the pact has to hold – and there's not only no sign that a pact around that is holding, we're like moving in the opposite direction. Like Marco Rubio is tweeting this morning about a border patrol agent who got killed and how this guy's death proves that Democrats are being irresponsible by not building the wall. And, you know, like that's – I'm not seeing – a like move internal to the conservative movement where people are going to be like, that is shocking and unconscionable to cynically exploit fear of crime for political gains. So, yeah, so I think like, first of all, historical policy note, I get like, I think that you're simultaneously making an argument. I think you're really making an argument about like how mandatory minimums like became an important thing that politicians were running on and enacting. But the reason that this was developed as policy initially was because there was so much judicial discretion. Like literally in California, a judge could sentence somebody to a day or to three years. Like that's not a great range. And in fact, a lot of like good government liberals and racial justice advocates were concerned that that meant that racial bias was going to play too big a role in judicial decision making. Oh, it's just like he's a nice young man. We'll give him six months. Exactly. Like that guy. As a thug, we'll give him ten years. Exactly. Right. Um, so it was it was yet another example, and like the last half century in criminal justice policy is littered with things that are supposed to reduce racial bias, ending up coming out in racially disparate ways. But the optimistic argument for the impact of first step is that actually it does send the signal that even as the Republican Party is using fear of crime as a political weapon, that that is not stopping them from also passing these bills. Like uh, when, you know, I was, I kind of made the rounds, talked to some people when this bill got passed and somebody who I, who's been working on this for a while, who I absolutely trust to, to read the scores. Like, honestly, the thing that I can say about this bill is hopefully it will spur the second round of reform in the states because the states is where the action is in terms of numbers. The states are where they have to be solving the hard problems of what do you do with violent offenders. Right. And state politicians are the ones who are much more susceptible to the politics of, oh, someone in your state was let out of prison and committed a heinous crime. Like, it's harder to nationalize that specific stuff than it is to do it at the state level. And thinking about that, I do think it's an optimistic read, uh, but I think that it's not necessarily wrong that in the same way that even though Donald Trump was not exactly staying up until all hours calling senators on the phone and asking them to vote for this bill because it was important to him, Donald Trump sending the signal that he wasn't going to turn on the conference and like talk about how they want to be soft on all these thugs did like create a perception of safety that it was okay for congressmen to actually vote for something that theoretically could be used against them in fights from the right. Actually, the funniest part of that was not just Trump agreeing to do it, right? there was a report that the White House got in touch with Fox News. And Hope Hicks yes. came up with a statement because the entities behind Fox News, which 21st Century Fox, have long been kind of on supportive of this type of criminal justice reform. And part of that was involved that, like, they wanted to share the stories of people who had been, you know, released from prison and then done something awesome with their lives in their networks, which is why you started seeing, like, stories in the Wall Street Journal about how a extremely tight employment market means that there's been more opportunities for ex-convicts. Right, but I mean, like, this is also the pivot, right? Because yeah. it's like yeah. Fox News, right? If if Fox News had taken the view on the caravan that, like, well, this is this kind of <laughs> irresponsible, we're going to be high-minded about this, right? Like, the whole thing wouldn't have gotten off the ground. And Fox doesn't always do what Trump wants, right? Like, why we're back in this wall shutdown is that apparently Fox was not going to give Trump cover to cave on the wall funding issue. So like an actually key moment in this wasn't just like the president signaling that he wasn't going to lash out people soft on crime. It was that like if Tom Cotton had been able to book himself on Fox primetime and, like, go have a dialogue with the hosts about how Mitch McConnell and party leaders were selling us out, like, it's possible he could have killed this thing. I mean, it's possible he wouldn't have, right? But it was like they cut off the mechanism through which 
opposition would do it because they – I mean because I guess they believed in it and because the White House – you know, wanted them to, right? Yes. I mean, like, there was a request put in, like, don't blow this up. Right. So I think that the bottom line of first step happening in the context of a return to, you know, this rhetoric being a big tool of the Republican Party is that if I'm an anonymous Republican state legislator and I've been thinking about, you know, taking another bite at the apple on criminal justice reform because it's been like a decade since my legislature passed something on it. I probably would be looking at the national state of Republican Party politics and going, gee, this sounds like a really, really risky move. It seems like a really good opportunity for me to get primaried from the right. Like the thing that's going to come up the next time I try to run for like some higher office. But if I then look at the fact that simultaneously – National Republican Party leadership is using law and order messaging and passing on a policy level criminal justice reform. I'm looking at that and going, gee, it doesn't seem like there's a real opportunity for somebody to say that I'm not in touch with the modern Republican Party if I want to let some people out of prison. I think that's kind of the optimistic read for the, the, impact of this is not that first step itself is all that big a deal, but that it sends the message that it is possible to have tough on crime rhetoric like paired with criminal justice reform as policy. All right, we're gonna we're gonna take a short break. I also wonder, and this is just my read of the situation, that in a sense, as crime has decreased, I think more Americans have less experience of being victims of violent crime, but more experience, especially as the opioid epidemic continues, more experience of their own loved ones being engaged in what would be termed criminal activity. Because, you know, when we were talking about the crack, the so-called crack epidemic of the 1980s, that was a conversation that did not involve the people it most closely impacted. That was a topic that was basically about like siloing off urban areas to go to where whatever hell they were in while kind of exurban, suburban areas would be safe from whatever was taking place there. But with the opioid epidemic, that has taken place in the exurbs, in the suburbs, in communities where people did not think that they would have to ever deal with the real manifestations of the drug war or of what opioids can do to a community. And so I think that the idea that First step, and I think that it was interesting because there were some Black Lives Matter people who pointed this out, is really kind of made, in a sense, for the person who has been sent to prison as a result of attempting to feed their addiction to opioids or as a result of, like, very low-level trafficking. And I think when when we use terms like trafficking, your, your first thought is, like, Tony Montana. When we're talking about trafficking, a lot of these cases, we're talking about someone driving across state lines with, like, one pound of marijuana or something like that or yeah, like, this is this is we're so not, much of intent to distribute laws weight based rather than any circumstantial evidence. Don't even get me into that because I get very upset about it because I think that like even the terminology we use is all based on an understanding of crime that is very like from the absolute heaviest, heaviest form of this when we're that's not what we're talking about and that's not what First Step is about. But I do think that as crime continues to decrease, but we are seeing more people dealing with addiction and dealing with not wanting, you know, you when you're talking about crime or prison or jailing people, no American thinks that is something that I want to happen to this person who I know, this person who is enduring the struggle of addiction that I am close to or know. They're thinking like, yes, I would absolutely want my kid, if my kid wound up in federal prison, to be able to get earn time credits for planned release or be able to get into a halfway house so that they could be released earlier. And so I think that that conversation has shifted because being tough on crime, I think that that's why kind of like the MS-13 thing started happening more, like when people talked about it among Republicans, it was this idea of like, MS-13 isn't just murdering your kids, they're murdering your kids via giving them opiates. And I think that that's something that's changed in this conversation. It'll be interesting to see though, right, because part of what we're doing here is we are unraveling some old concepts, right, right. around intent to distribute, blah, 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 blah. The push and pull of drug anxieties, right, Jane, is that like 
normal people with hard drugs, at least, drugs that, that lead to a lot of fatal overdoses rather than marijuana, they both want harsh punishment for the bad people who are causing the drug problem to right. occur. But they want relatively generous treatment of the good people who are the victims of the drug trade. The problem and then, being and then that the, the good people and the bad people are often sometimes the same well, people. it is tricky to operationalize the intuitive view that the bad drug dealer who got your cousin hooked should go to jail, but that your cousin should, you right. know, be sort of maybe made to dry out, but like help to go get a job. Because in your mind, it's like, well, the dealer, but your cousin was addicted. So maybe was selling some drugs or maybe did a, you know, broke the law, stole some stuff to fund the addiction. So it's it's hard to write the statute that achieves what people sort of want in their head. But there are ways as a political entrepreneur to make people think that you have written the statute yes. that's going to do it. So part of what we're doing here, we're talking about old laws that are right. based on an old drug epidemic. And we're sort of addressing the fact that the laws don't quite do what we had wanted them to do. And an interesting thing going forward is are we going to see a new generation of entrepreneurs putting forward a new proposed operationalization of we're going to get the kingpins. We're going to get the dealers. We need to get tougher on them. Of course, we need to do more on treatment. But also clearly a problem here is that people are making money off of this. And there was an early surge, right? People on the left actually had a lot of enthusiasm about the idea that the pharmaceutical companies were going to be the bad ones and the addicts were going to be the good ones. And unfortunately for them, actually unfortunately for America, the problem has sort of exploded now way beyond the bounds of pill abuse. So you can't – like that, that's not going yeah, mean, that, to – that's, well, that's not going to work for fentanyl. It's um, right. Like and there's pretty compelling evidence that – a, a lot of people, their opioid addiction was not initially like diversion of drugs they were properly prescribed anyway. But also to the extent that that was true, a crackdown on the diversion of prescription drugs led people right. to seek out cheaper but and that's, more but, but that's forms. what I mean. So like we went through this, right? We right. had the crackdown on overprescribing. We had the crackdown on pill mills. We never had, I think, the, the left idea of like they throw the pharma executives in prison. Right. But the problem has now gone beyond that. But I don't think the like basic politics of while trying to help the victims, we need to find the bad guys and like really throw the book at them has gone away quite so much as nobody has – figured out? Like, what do they want to say about that now? Like, who are the fentanyl distributors who we are going to get much, much tougher on? Trump has actually mixed this up with the wall idea, right? right. Which doesn't I think it's actually like so outlandish that people aren't buying it and it's not it's not working. But there's like an itch for that, right? Like people want something that to be done that is dramatic, that possibly costs billions of dollars, that possibly is quite uh, harsh and inhumane, but that will target like the malefactors in I mean, this I don't think somebody's gotten it mixed up with the wall. I think that there actually is a very strong like political policy argument that – and. The problem with this is that if you've heard the case against the wall, you've heard this, the majority of drugs coming into the United States come through at ports of entry rather than illegally or, you know, rather than like being smuggled in like between ports of entry. That's a problem for policy. It is something that if you want the big dramatic response, like that's an argument for shutting down the border entirely, including at ports of entry, which is obviously an absolute economic disaster um, and a political disaster for anyone who is in any way involved with legitimate trade and transit across the border. But it is the case that fentanyl in particular is an importation problem and particularly from Mexico and from China, who are both very easy enemies for the Trump administration to create. So I don't think that they don't have the messaging. It's that they have the messaging. No one's figured out what the, like, policy apparatus you construct to make it look like you're getting tough on Mexico and China is. But that's absolutely a compelling direction for them to go. Right. right. But I think that, you know, more to your point, Matt, is that, you know, 
that we don't have like a Cali cartel or a Pablo Escobar that we're just like, all right, we're going to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to go down to Colombia and kill these people. Uh-huh. You know, we don't have this like singular entity because I think like it's interesting because the trial of you know El Chapo is going on right now. And the story of how drug trafficking has worked from Mexico or from South America, we no longer have the single-minded story of like, this person is why we have this problem. And if we go after this person, that problem is basically solved. I remember starting to hear a little bit about fentanyl because fentanyl would show up in um, pain patches that yeah. were given to people from hospitals. And then you would hear about people who were, you know, cut open those patches and start like trying to suck out the gel that contained fentanyl. We have never really figured out opioids throughout our history. You know, if you want a fun Google, Google the great binge of the like 1880s through about 1920s in which we simultaneously were like, opioids are amazing. We should put them in everything. And then people were like, oh, hang on a second. Opioids are very bad. But the cyclical nature of opioids and how we handle them has never, we've never gotten off the cycle of what to do about them. Fentanyl is just the most recent example. But I think that, you know, when we talked about Oxycontin or Opana or any of these drugs, we've never really been able to figure out that the degree to which, you know, how people respond to opioids and how to classify opioids and the issues that come from, you know, not just talking about, you know, where they're coming from, but what they're doing. I know that we've kind of come a little bit far afield from where we started talking about First Step. But again, First Step is criminal justice reform is asking a lot of questions of Americans that many people have never even pondered answering about like, what is a crime? What does punishment, adequate punishment look like for a crime? Should this person who looks like you be punished the same way as this person who looks very differently from you or has committed more crimes before? But I think that when we're talking about fentanyl or opioids, those are just asking why do we think about fentanyl in this very specific way? We talk about fentanyl in a way that we did not talk about pill mills in Florida or talk about the pill highway that go, you know, from up the East Coast from New Jersey to Florida. We talk about these drugs in such a different way. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But I think that the First Step Act, if it's done anything, it's the first step of a larger conversation that many Americans have never even thought to have. I would love to believe that starting a conversation by passing a Please let me bill, believe this. Like, Please, th- this, this is, is my Christmas gift. You know, Please. The, yeah, I think it's the think opposite. This, right, right. Like, and this is, I think, the big immediate question for criminal justice reform at the federal level. Like, a lot of this conversation has really been a conversation about the nationalization of politics over the last 30 years. Like, to the point that even though the states are where innovation is happening on criminal justice reform and the place where the biggest policy lifts have to happen, it was kind of seen as an incomplete move if it didn't have a federal counterpart to the point that, you know, the national like tough on crime messaging of the Trump administration is going to have a trickle down effect through Republican Party officials at every level of the government. Like, That makes it much harder to open up new avenues of inquiry and ask new questions. Like, it needed an elite consensus that mass incarceration had been too much of a problem to even start the conversation at a legislative level in Congress because the nationalization of politics has made it very hard to, like, have any kind of laboratory of democracy kind of stuff bubble up. The table is getting set by the people at the top. So, This is both a question of does Congress actually think that it's going to come back and take another bite at the apple? Like this is always the question when you have initially broad bills that get turned into more narrow bills. You have the people on – you know, you have its supporters saying, well, the point of this is to demonstrate that we can do it so that it's easier the next time. And the people who are – who believe it doesn't go far enough saying, nah, you guys don't get it. Everyone's now going to say, we did that. Let's pivot right. to something else. That's if we, point. Yeah, like if we have one bite at the apple, let's make it count. This is something that I'm very used to on the politics of immigration reform. But there's also the political question of does the need to keep asking questions about the purpose of our criminal justice system persist even when, in theory, this is a box that has gotten checked. And I'm not convinced that that's going to happen. So I would like to just add in one thing very quickly. 
Also, in the midst of criminal justice reform passing, after 240 attempts, we now have federal anti-lynching legislation. Because of Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Tim Scott, I would just like to note that anti-lynching legislation, people have been trying to do it since the 1880s. It has never worked. And only in 2018 have we been able to make lynching a crime at the federal level. And I just would like everyone to reflect on the fact that it took 240 attempts, including seven presidents issuing their support for anti-lynching legislation, and it never happened. Indeed. Well, I have so much more to say on the subject of congressional agenda crowding. Yes. I think think that's got to be a whole other episode. So we are going to wrap it up here. I I want to make a a special shout out this episode to Griffin Tanner, who has been producing and engineering for The Weeds for a while now. This is his last show with us and will be greatly missed. Thanks so much for for all the hard work over this time. Uh, Let's do a... Get some applause on the thing. And um, with that, we're going to wrap up, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 